Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the FP Advisor podcast. This week, we examine the prospects for global dividends after the pandemic. I'm David Thorne, Special Projects Editor at FT Advisor. The pandemic is likely to shake up the way many economies and businesses form, creating a new suite of challenges for equity income investors who have already been feeling the pain of low interest rates for a decade. Joining me today to discuss the search for global dividends after the pandemic Sam Witherow, who runs the JP Morgan Equity Income Fund, Graham Bishop, Chief Investment Officer at Hartwood, and David Keir, Global Equity Fund Manager at Saracen. Thank you all for joining me. Graham, if we, if we start with you, I mean, do investors need to get used to a new normal of perennially lower dividends and yield levels and income levels? And they have to expect in the past. Perhaps in the past, a 4% or 5% annual yield would not have been seen as over-ambitious. Are those days gone? Um, hi, David. Yeah, good question. Um, and I think the short answer to that is not necessarily. Um, we can all appreciate that um, as economic growth has been adversely affected by um, recent events, that it's logical to, to perhaps assume that dividends going forward might be impaired. But I'm not sure it will be the case um, indefinitely. I think there'll certainly be winners and losers. Um, we can see that quite clearly at the moment. Um, some companies have um, been unable to pay dividends um, because they just can't. Others have been un- unable or unwilling to pay. So I think um, I would not subscribe to the idea that a, a new normal for dividends going forward is going to be structurally worse. Um, but I would certainly say that the, uh, there will be, um, as always, a divergence between the, the winners and losers. Uh, but I think ultimately the answer co- comes down to whether you think growth going forward is going to be structurally impaired as a result of uh, recent events. And that is not our, our central case. Thank you. Sam, as an investor there on the, on the front line, trying to, trying to find that income yield for clients, do, do you just have to get used to structurally lower levels? Is that going to be the story forever? Or will new uh, income champions emerge as the new economy emerges? Yeah, hi, David. So I think you can answer your question one of two ways. So if you're asking if yields will be perennially lower, then I'd argue perhaps, yes, interest rates will be the key driver. And it doesn't look to us like interest rates are heading back towards levels of 3% or so anytime soon. Uh, low rates have been pushing up bond and equity prices, suppressing yields. So, as you say, a, a few years ago, a well-covered, resilient dividend um, would maybe trade at a yield of as much as 5%. Today, that figure, we think, is probably closer to 3 And just as we've had to all get used to lower rates in our current and savings accounts, we'll also have to get used to lower yields in bonds and dividend markets. But if your question is will absolute dividends be perennially lower, then our answer would be a resounding no. Um, Dividends for the MSCI World Index uh, last year were roughly three times what they were 20 years ago. And my guess is they'll probably be around three times larger again in in 20 years. And that's really the beauty of equities. You know, you're always riding the tailwinds of of human ingenuity and, and nominal GDP growth. And 
our forecast for global dividends looking forward over the next five years is that they'll actually grow at a pretty healthy 8% rate. And that's, and that's fairly similar to the recovery uh, post the great financial crisis. Thank you. David, as, a, as an income um, investor, is, is the choice really between being buying those predictable, well-covered yields at, at 3% and accepting that? Or is there, is there another way, a better way? Well, we'll come on, come on to a later question on that. I mean, I guess uh, in dealing you know, specifically with the question, I, I think, you know, we would take a step back and say, actually, what is causing this current situation? You know, as you alluded to, bond yields are low, had QE, et cetera. But the reality is this current dividend uh, issue and dividend shortage is particularly caused also by COVID. And although it's hard to, to sort of get your head around it, the reality is COVID will pass. It's a finite event. COVID will pass. And actually, many of the companies that actually aren't paying dividends today, uh, they're either being restricted by sometimes ability by a regulator or a government, or actually, you know, weren't at, some companies weren't actually able to hold their AGMs due to you know un- inability for, to adhere to social distancing, etc. So, pandemic will pass. Uh, economic growth will pick up again. We're probably you know early cycle, you know, into an early cycle, uh, early stage recovery cycle. Um, so companies will grow again, and they will pay dividends again. Um, now, what's what's really interesting though is actually there will be some, you know, there are companies in structural decline. So if you look at some of the historic areas that income investors would have looked for dividend yield, they might look to telcos or to oil and gas companies. They historically have paid very attractive dividends, uh, high dividend yields. But the reality is some of these areas actually now are in structural decline. And actually many of them, whether it be an Orange, a Vodafone, a BP, a BT rather, or a BP or, or Shell, they've all cut their dividends. And these dividends are permanent cuts in dividends. So these are areas that will not recover quickly, but many of the other areas will recover quickly as the economic economies recover, as governments and regulators allow these companies to pay dividends again. So for us, it's very much a case of dividends will recover, but perhaps in different areas to where, where income investors have historically relied on. Thank you. And David, just to, to follow that, that question up really, um, uh, one option that uh, in investors, particularly investors in the accumulation, uh, may have um, is to um, take uh, some income every year from from capital growth. Is that an approach that you you think could become much more normalised in in the years ahead? I think it's a very short term fix, and it's not sustainable. So you know, I think um, I think that's the, I think that's is, is, is clearly no. I mean, some investment trusts perhaps have been over distributing, um, and clearly in the short term they can obviously you know gear up take money from the capital account, et cetera, to, to, to fix a short-term problem, but it's not a long-term uh, solution. Uh, I, I think what perhaps these guys do, is just, as I just alluded to my previous answer, is there is going to be plenty of income available. Uh, it's just not perhaps the areas that traditional investment trusts have looked before. So your big, boring companies, as I alluded to your oils, your telcos, where historically been a good source of yield, they won't be the source going forward. There's many other areas that investors can look to, whether it be in healthcare, even in some technology companies, et cetera, are paying interesting dividends now. So I don't think, I think it's a short-term fix, but it ain't the long-term solution for, for investment trusts. Thank you. Graham, if you're having a, a conversation with a, a client and they, they talk about that, that need for, for income, um, what are your thoughts on, well, frankly, selling some of the units, the capital account to give them, give them income that year uh, to make up for the, the, uh, the lack of yield? 
Um, I think for clients where income is a priority, that might be necessary in the near term. But I think um, in the longer term, um, as our other speakers have mentioned, I'm not sure that will be necessary uh, and certainly not desirable. Um, there's only a finite amount of time you can start depleting your, your underlying capital position um, to pay you an income today. Um, so I think um, it won't be... Uh, it won't pan out that way either because in the future, and I, as we've all kind of mentioned here in one way or another, the, the longer-term outlook for dividends probably will improve just as um, we all realize that this, this recent, uh, well, 2020 has been characterized by more of a natural disaster than any kind of typical recession. And viewed through that prism, I think um, if you do have to deplete your, your capital base, it will be a temporary uh, thing. And um, those that are thinking it should be a more permanent um, kind of change in tack, I think that would be a that would be a wrong thing to do because yeah, you're you're basically going to deplete your your uh, your base rather rapidly, and you won't be left with very much um, in the in the fullness of time. Thank you, um, Sam. As a as a unit trust um, manager, obviously you, you don't have the the option that David mentioned of of gearing up. Um, or, or paying out of capital reserves, um, but are there um, is there an approach around selling certain equities that have gone up a lot to improve the capital account? Is that is that the sort of thing that you could or would do? Yeah. So, David, I think I think this question really kind of comes back to how you've communicated your yield strategy to your clients. I mean, if you've had a fixed yield policy, then you know, you very well may 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 have to, to to dip into capital. I mean, a yield that seemed conservative a few years ago may now seem pretty optimistic. Um, so you've got the, the the choice of paying income from capital, or you're or you're faced with actually rotating into ever higher yielding stocks, and that can mean taking on more cyclical and structural risk. But if instead you've got a flexible yield policy, as we do in the JP Morgan Global Equity Income Fund, and instead just target a material yield premium to the prevailing market yield, then, you know, frankly, it's sort of business as, as usual. I mean, our yield will therefore, to some extent, rise and fall with the market. But a falling yield is no bad if it's, it's no bad thing if it's because values have appreciated strongly, as we've seen over the last few years. Thank you. Um, Graham, as long as I'm doing this job, which is far too many years now, um, there's been this prevailing discussion around um, the merits or, or otherwise of some of these very large companies that are often called um, bond proxies uh, that have traded at relatively uh, elevated valuations relative to their history, but uh, appear to be able to generate durable profits and um, pay a, a yield. Um, is it worth, in your view, paying up for, for those companies? I'm thinking of Unilever, Iagio, Relx, there's there's a number of them. Is it worth is it worth paying up for, for those to get the predictable, boring yield that they offer? Um, that is a very good question. And I think the two answers to that are, one, it will depend on your time frame. Um, so from time to time, the answer to that, I would say, is yes. Um, so, for example, in the recent you know, uh, past, it has been very desirable to, um, to own those companies. And yes, they have traded at very expensive levels, um, but that has been very much a good thing, primarily because their, their balance sheets and dividend cover have been um, very good. 
but there will be other times where that is not desirable, um, which is the second part of the answer, really. Um, which So if there's any kind of rotation um, across the market into areas that have underperformed, and I would argue that that's primarily going to happen when there is a, um, a more optimistic outlook and um, growth is improving and inflation is improving and, and, and perhaps even bond yields are rising. In that environment, yes, I think you could, you could start to rotate and the desirability of the companies you've just mentioned would start to wane. So I think um, that ties into the point about it, you know, having a, a balanced portfolio um, with a, a range of income-producing assets, and not just within the equity space, but more broadly, as, as we do at Hartwood, I think is um, very much uh, um, in vogue and would be the, the sensible approach, in my view. Thank you. Uh, David, as a, as a global equity income fund manager, I'm sure you've been asked this question 15 million times, but, um, you know, you can, you can just... If, if you just bought Unilever ten years ago, the the capital performance of it might might have looked uh, might have looked pretty good, but you had to hold your nose when you did the when you did the maths on the multiplier on the multiple. But um, what's your view? Have you held Unilever for forever and ever and ever? We we did own it, but when we sold it, we you know we've we're probably more the sort of the, the value and we have a strict valuation discipline and. And frankly, you know, owning Unilever on 23 times uh, current year earnings yielding 2.9 for us is is far too expensive. Uh, but what, what, what's interesting, why do I say it's expensive? Um, because we, we like to buy companies that are growing. And if you look at the growth that many of these companies you're alluding to, you know, it's maybe 3 4% top-line growth. Margins are paid to reinvest in the brand. So, so there isn't an awful lot of growth in these companies. So people are paying a very big premium um, you know, for the security of, of, of the income stream, and and we don't think that you can justify that. Uh, I mean, what's really interesting, I was looking at looking at just across the global market, and so yes, yeah, so we, we, actually before I came on the podcast, I was just having a look at uh, some of the global consumer staples, which have been you know they've all performed fantastically well over the last ten years, and many of them are dividend aristocrats, so i.e. the increase of dividend for the last twenty five years plus. We'll take a good example, looking at Coca Cola. So it's increased its dividend for the last fifty seven years. Uh, but it currently pay, trades on a P of twenty eight and a yield of three. But as you alluded to in the question, when you look under the bonnet of these companies, uh, you, you know, it's actually relatively troubling. So look at Coca Cola, go back the last seven years, its earnings haven't grown. Its dividend has grown every year. The dividend now is barely covered by cash. And the balance sheet net debt has gone up from $20 billion to $32 billion. So I get the whole uncertain backdrop with COVID. I get the whole bond yields are low, et cetera. But as Graham alluded to in his answer, things can change. Economic growth can pick up. Inflation bond yields can pick up. And all of a sudden, people will say, well, actually, hang on a second, paying a very high multiple, a multiple I've never seen before for these businesses is not the right strategy. Uh, and we would, you know, we've sold these things too early, but the reality is we just don't see value in owning these in these companies because uh, you could easily see a situation where they derate significantly from these levels. Sam Witherell, um, as David uh, mentioned in his uh, answer, um, the multiples at which some of these consumer staples are trading have never been seen before in, in history. You know, they've paid their dividends for 50 years. They've never been on these multiples before. Uh, advocates of those stocks would say, well, bond yields have never been this low in history before. And there is a relationship between the valuation of those consumer staples and of bond yields. And as long as bond yields are coming down, uh, those stocks multiples should be going up and therefore it's justified to own them. What would your take be on that as an income investor? 
I think, yeah, I think you've just partially answered the question for me. Thanks, David. But um, you, you mentioned Unilever at the beginning. I always think, when I think of Unilever, I always think they last cut their dividend in 1966, obviously, when we, when we won the World Cup. So I'm always looking ahead and thinking, hoping... It would, hoping, be, it would be an English person that mentions yes. Hoping the two, <laughs> Hoping the two aren't correlated. Um, but look, I guess I, 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 I kind of agree with, with Graham. It's really a question of, of time horizon. Um, you know, these kind of businesses look expensive today always, but, you know, give it a few years of steadily compounding growth with limited volatility. And you'll soon find that your, your investment returns are, are pretty, pretty adequate. And, you know, it's kind of because these businesses don't offer the highest yields or the fastest growth that, they usually get overlooked by shorter term investors looking for, for shorter term gains. And this, you know, tends to keep valuations not totally unreasonable and expectations um, uh, relatively low. So, so prospects for disappointment relatively uh, low. And, you know, it's these kind of businesses, these, these businesses that, that, you know, often called compounders that tend to make up uh, the bulk of our portfolios over time. And, you know, we think you can find them across most sectors, retail, tech, industrials, utilities, and occasionally you pay a small market premium, but generally it's it's usually pretty worth it. Thank you. And Sam, just to continue that theme, um, those um, compounders, as you call them, have performed generally quite well for the past decade. And the other part of the market that's performed quite well for the past decade are those, um, those big uh, tech stocks, uh, including those which are often called FANGs. But they're not uh, they're not known for being um, for being um, uh, income stocks. Do, does an investor really face a choice between investing in the few global companies that are growing on that scale, such as tech, but not really paying attractive dividends, or finding those income paying companies, such as Unilever, that have perhaps little growth but you can see the income? So, so my answer there is a resounding no. Um, look, I mean a- Apple and Microsoft. Uh, regardless of the yields, are the two of the world's sort of top three largest absolute dividend payers. You know, these are companies that have embraced dividends. Um, you know, looking a bit higher up the yield scale, you've got a business like uh, TSMC, the Taiwanese semiconductor manufacturer, which, you know, is probably the single most important company uh, in the world's tech supply chain. I mean, they'll pay a 3% dividend this year. You know, alternatively, you've got um, businesses in in other growth areas like renewables, um, You've got a business like Iberdrola that pays a 4% yield. Um, so, you know, we think if you look a little bit closer, there are actually myriad opportunities for investing in high growth, structurally advantaged, future facing dividend payers globally. They're just not always the most, the most marquee names. And I think this is one of the reasons why trying to invest passively in this category is difficult because the global high yield benchmark, uh, wherever they are, they're generally biased to these uh, lower growth, structurally challenged businesses, you know, in tobacco, in in oil and gas, etc. So, what we try and do is is balance investments in higher growth, lower yielding companies in the in the tech and consumer space, alongside lower growth but but more resilient high yielders in in places like insurance or or pharma. And this way, you can deliver a pretty attractive yield at a portfolio level, um, and still get access to to some of the most structurally attractive areas of the market. Thank you. Uh, Graham, um, when you're constructing those uh, portfolios at, at Hartwood, and do you really have to draw a line down the middle of the page and say the, the techie growth stuff is on, on that side and the, the income stuff is on, on that side? Or 
can it be more nuanced and subtle than that? Yeah, I think you can be more nuanced. I don't think the choice is quite as stark as you suggest there. Um, I, I'm aligned with, um, with Sam and his view as to um, balance being quite key. And it doesn't take very long to uncover a whole swathe of names um, which do pay attractive dividends um, and stable dividends um, out, um, outside of some of the, uh, the, the, the more um, risque sector, shall we say. Um, it also worth mentioning that it rather depends on what your objective is. If your objective is to, as a client, to um, just have high, high levels of income through, uh, through dividends, then that will get you to a portfolio which looks a certain shape. If your desired outcome, and this is what we do here, is to have a, a total return journey, um, which is um, as smooth as possible over the long run, but with a, in, in terms of our income portfolios with a slight income bent, then actually that gets you um, kind of thinking about all sorts of different ways of, of accessing income and in lots of the ways that Sam has just suggested, uh, but also outside of equities, which is also obviously what we do um, as well. So um, I think nuance, the nuanced answer is the one I would go with there rather than the stark contrast um, you present. Thank you. David, uh, you, you mentioned um, earlier in the podcast that you, uh, valuation is, is really uh, key for you. Um, well, but both of those uh, areas, um, uh, the fans and um, the, the consumer staples, are at least uh, arguably um, trading at, at very um, uh, expensive multiples. Um, but how, how do you view that trade-off between um, the fast growers and perhaps the, uh, the slower growers but better, better payers of, of income? I mean, in effect, you know, Microsoft and Apple were mentioned earlier, and you know, these are names that we've had exposure to in the past, and uh, you know, both are good examples of where we are with the market today. You know, when we launched the Sarsen Global Income Growth Fund, you know, back in June two thousand eleven, you know, Microsoft was trading on a P of nine, a yield of three, with twenty five percent of market cap and cash on the balance sheet. Today, it trades on a P of about thirty four times, with a yield significantly less than one. Uh, so you know, you look at that and you say. There's a lot of good news in that share price. Yes, I get the point. It's a very large absolute dividend pair. But frankly, the yield is very low now. The rating is very high. There's clearly a risk of slowing growth there um, with a lot of large numbers, regulation, et cetera. So, you know, we've owned these things, but we look at them and say they're very expensive. Apple's very similar again. You know, it's, it, it, you go back to Q1 2016, and people forget this, Apple traded on less than 10 times earnings yielding three with a good amount of cash on, on the balance sheet. Uh, today, it's on 37 times earnings, you're only 0.7. So the markets have moved on. We understand why they've moved on, uh, but you can't get away from the fact that a lot of these names are, are, are very expensive. We've dealt with the, the sort of the Unilever part of it as well. So there's a middle ground, clearly, and there's plenty of opportunities in the middle ground. Uh, and they don't even have to be, you know, fast-growing companies. I mean, you know, we, we tend to favour the sort of the healthcare sector as, as the ballast of our portfolio. And you can, you know, Something like Johnson & Johnson increases dividend for the last 57 years, trading on a P of 18, yield of nearly three. You know, that to us is a much more appealing way of, of, of getting, you know, a, a good balance of growth and income over the long term. So there's ways of doing it. It's been nuanced. But for us, as a you know, house that's focused on discipline, valuation discipline, you know, we have sold a lot of these names that everybody is still in so too early. But we just can't see how you make a lot of absolute money from these levels in many of these names. Thank you. Graeme, uh, when you're uh, constructing uh, portfolios um, and when you are thinking about that, that income piece, um, are small and mid-caps becoming a bigger part of the, the conversation? I suppose historically that's not where people look for income because the, 
the thinking is that uh, small companies have to reinvest any capital they generate from the next stage of growth. But given the travails of some of the larger companies in, in the world in, in terms of generating cash, is, is it time to look to small and mid? So I think the answer to your question, David, is very much a, a yes. I think um, we, we can look towards the small and mid-cap space uh, in, a, in a more positive fashion with regards to income investing. And I think the answer is related to um, concentration. Large caps um, do harbor a lot of the uh, big income payers, but over in a very small handful of names. So we need to think about diversification. Um, and small and mid-cap names um, do offer that. Um, and in some cases, you can, can get better dividend cover in the smaller mid-cap space. So, yeah, I think it absolutely does make sense to, to broaden your um, gaze a bit and to look beyond the concentration that you find in the large cap space. Thank you. Sam, have you found yourself uh, moving down the, the market cap uh, spectrum in your equity income fund in recent times? So, to be honest, no. I mean, we, we have an unashamedly sort of large cap bias and, and and that's because we think our our sort of global research platform is is best as generated to, to suiting alpha through um you know leveraging and combining insights from different regions and industries which we can apply to, to large cap multinationals and, and we still find plenty of attractive income opportunities in that universe um but that said, look, I, I suspect the answer to your question, um, you know, and, and Graham agrees, is is, is yes, uh, and especially in a in a UK context, um, you know, I think we could all observe that the dividends generated by the FTSE are pretty skewed to old economy sectors, energy, uh, telcos, banks, um, and actually, you know, judging by the performance of our UK mid cap team, it looks like they're finding plenty of attractive uh, opportunities in that space. So uh, probably yes, but I'm not the best person to answer. Thank you. Uh, David, uh, you're relatively uh, cautious on the valuations of some of those big tech names and relatively cautious on the valuations of some of those big consumer names. Um, do I take it, therefore, that you've been uh, searching for value further down the market cap scale? Well, no, we not in the global fund. In our global fund, you know, we're a large cap play as well. So we've been finding much more value in, in other areas other than the, the, the classic tech and uh, tech and uh, consumer staples names, whether it be healthcare, uh, whether it be some of the more early cycle industrials. Uh, there's lots of good growth opportunities in, in, in names like Schneider and Rockwell or some of the more early cycle names such as Weinerberger, Sangaban, Heidelberg, Cement, et cetera. Um, but in terms of, of the of the sort of the, the modern mid small cap, I think Sam hit the nail on the head there. We actually have a have a, a UK uh, mid and small cap income fund, uh, Saracen, and and this is an absolute pure play on on this part of the market. And and there are, as, as Sam alluded to there, you know, you don't need to own the, the big oils, the banks, the, the pharma, the, uh, the telco sectors. There's plenty of opportunities uh, in there. And you know, and this is very topical. Look at this morning. You know, Rathbone's results out this morning's, and there's a company. With good growth, good market position, P of thirteen, yield of four and a half percent, has grown its dividend consistently over the last few years. So there are plenty of opportunities, but that is very much a UK particular phenomenon, I would argue. Thank you. That's that's great. Okay. Um. As a as just a final question, guys, and answers could be relatively brief. And um, one of the features so far from the pandemic has been that um, uh, China's economy uh, seems to have back and its stock market has performed quite strongly. Um, 
Sam, as a global income guy, can you uh, can can you start thinking more about China? Will China become a dividend market as its economy and stock market and companies uh, mature and develop? Great question. I, th- I think the answer is almost certainly yes, uh, but the time horizon is kind of uncertain. I mean, Ch- China today has a twenty-seven percent payout ratio, uh, and that's similar to where Japan was before uh, the Abenomics um, sort of reform started pushing that up. But those Chinese dividends come very much from state-operated enterprises. Um, you know, this is banks, resources, etc. Um, you know, contrast this to the U.S., where a lot of the dividends now come from tech, consumer, healthcare sectors. So we really need China um, to start to embrace shareholder returns when 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 Alibaba and Tencent, etc., start really ramping payouts. And we're watching this process very closely. You know, our EM team covers over 300 Chinese companies. Um, listed in both Hong Kong and the mainland. And look, we're we're well primed to take advantage of it when when this event happens. But for now, we have only a a couple of Chinese stocks in the portfolio. Thank you. Uh, David, um, have you been been casting your eye eastwards and uh, and, uh, buying, buying Chinese stocks? I mean, Sam, look to exactly the same thought process, looking at it carefully. I mean, we have had some exposure in the past. We've owned a company called Anta Sports, which when we bought it had a, a, an attractive dividend yield of, of of between three and four percent, had net cash on the balance sheet and lowly rated, and that has actually re-rated now had to sell it because it's, it's done it's done so well. Um but it is all about for us, it's all about, you know, the hard yards of getting under the bonnet of the company, looking at the governance, looking at the shielding structure. Um as Sam alluded to there, a lot of them have state are state owned enterprises, etc. So um, and a lot of them haven't quite got the dividend culture. You know, if you look for the dividend aristocrats, you go to the United States, there's a massive list of companies that have increased the dividends for at least 25 years. That list clearly, as you'd expect, given the, the relative recent emergence of, of China and Chinese companies is much smaller. So the dividend culture isn't ingrained there yet. However, the pay rates are low as economies mature. We'd expect that to be a, a, a very interesting area for income investors over the, over the medium term. Thank you. Graham, as a um, as chief investment officer, I suppose asset allocation is is uh, within your remit. Um, how do you allocate to, to China now, or how, how do you view China from an income point of view, and, and generally, really? Sure. Yeah. Well, first of all, we have been um, pleasantly surprised with the degree of um, recovery in the Chinese economy, um, and yes, we have own, we do own, and have and have bought into uh, Chinese equities, um, the the A shares in particular. Um, we haven't done that for income-related reasons, I have to be honest, but I can see the case uh, as being quite strong in the future for owning uh, Chinese equities for income-related reasons. Um, the reason for this is um, I dare say that, the, um, I dare say that the, the Chinese policymakers will want to shift the, the mindset of their, of their local investors away from making a short-term uh, buck um, using price only to a more sustainable, um, longer term kind of income related um, kind of mindset. So to the degree that they want to do that, that they might well encourage um, Chinese companies to um, uh, shift their dividend and policies too. So I can see that being a, a trend for the future. Um, and so we, we watch and wait with bated breath. Thank you for that, Graham, and thank you to Sam Witherow, who runs the JP Morgan Equity Income Fund, and David Keir, the Global Equity Fund Manager at Saracen, for their time today. Join me after the break while we discuss the week in news 
and catch up on all of the latest events in our industry. Welcome back. Joining me to discuss the latest happenings in the advice industry are Damien Fantato, Digital Editor at FT Advisor and Imogen Chu, Investment Reporter at FT Advisor. Thank you both for coming in, guys. We will start with Imogen, who has been focusing quite a lot of her time and considerable energy on the topic of property funds, specifically open-ended property funds. Imogen, this is a topic that's been in the in industry, it's been industry for as long as I've been around, and as you know, that's many decades. <laughs> What's the latest update? Sure. So as you well know, um, all kind of bricks and mortar property funds available to retail investors suspended in the third week of March due to the coronavirus crisis and the market uncertainty it caused. Um, we are starting to see some asset managers reopen their property funds. Uh, nature is healing and some investors have access to their cash. Uh, those investors include those in Columbia Threadneedle, Royal London, uh, Canada Life, LNG, and uh, both uh, Aberdeen Standard Investments property funds will be reopening in November. Thank you, um, Imogen. This is obviously, as, as you've mentioned, COVID has sparked the latest crisis in this area. But the topic of liquidity and open-ended property funds has been has been um, ongoing. Some some of them closed after the Brexit referendum in 2016. Essentially, buildings take a long time to sell, even if the market conditions are very benign, which they're not now. And that time lag perhaps doesn't um, always suit uh, daily dealing funds. Um, the regulator has been um, in taking an interest in, in this as well. And there have been some suggestions, I think, Imogen, that daily dealing may not be allowed in future. Sure, yeah. So the uh, Financial Conduct Authority is currently consulting on proposals to install kind of a redemption period for these funds. So um, they said between 90 and 180 days, so three to six months, where investors will have to kind of put a request in and then wait until that time has passed to discover the value of their investment and to redeem their cash. So um it's probably not going to be a massive shock to investors who have been long term property investors who already have dealt with, as you say, two waves of suspensions. They know they know what it's like to wait for their cash. If they're looking at it as a long term investment, it's probably not going to make that much difference to kind of their psychology around this. I think where the problems may spark is how do platforms deal with this redemption period? How do advisors deal with it in their centralised investment propositions? How can it be part of a model portfolio when you're dealing with kind of various different investors with different invest in redemption terms? Um, so it'd be really interesting to see actually how the industry does deal with kind of the practical element of this, even if everyone's on side in kind of the theoretical, this is a good idea. Um, story, then how does it actually work in reality? I suppose this is something that we've seen over and over again, isn't it? There, where the, sometimes the thing that holds people back is the technology or the the underlying system that underpins something, isn't it? But enough about trying to record a podcast with me. Then, what were you <laughs> thinking about? Um, what, what were you uh, thinking about and looking at um, in in your role over the past uh, week or two? Yeah, so I mean, I've been um, one of the interesting things that I've um, been picking up on is the um, 
this some of the issues that you've had um, around the CII's um, testing um, system, which has there's has faced another another problem recently, where you've had um, candidates sitting exams with the CII being hit with more problems at test centres. Um, where it, in this particular instance, you had the the system froze or shut down um, hours into the exam. Um, the reason I think that's interesting is because one of the things that we've been covering on FT Advisor is the fact that you've got an increased demand um, for entering the advice profession at um, from younger people. You know, you've had people uh, graduate ages um, as opposed to um, people starting a second career. I think uh, one of our colleagues, Rachel um, Mortimer, covered a story recently where um, Quilter financial, the Quilter Financial Advisor School um, has seen a, uh, quite a large shift in its, its the demographics of its cohort over the course of this year. Uh, so in January, 22% of its um, of the students entering its cohort were graduates, whereas in September that was shot up to 56%. So for all the sort of talk about the age of financial advisors, there's potential there for um, the demographics of, uh, of financial advisors to um, to change um, quite significantly, but and I guess this goes back to the point that with the, the issue that we were discussing a little earlier, you, you know, if the, the systems need to be need to be in place uh, to allow that to happen. So um, it, if they can't take an exam, um, then that's um, then the, that's going to you know stand in their way of them of them becoming qualified. Um, and we need to make sure that this is that these changes take place because at the end of the day, uh, for the for the advice profession to be seen as a profession, it needs to be seen as the sort of career that you aim to enter into after you um, after you leave school or uni, uh, like you would become a lawyer or an accountant. Yeah, so it's um interesting interesting uh, dynamic there. I think. Thank you, Damien, and thank you, Imogen, for your time today as well. Tune in next week for another edition of the FT Advisor Podcast.